Exodus 28. If you'll join me there, we'll pick back up where we left off. The last few chapters together, we have been looking at God giving instruction to Moses, uh, particularly at this point regarding uh, the worship system that was to be instituted among the nation of Israel. In the prior chapters, we looked at what was really going to be the the centrality uh, of the worship system, what we call the tabernacle, this tent-like structure that was to be erected there in the center of the camp and it was sort of a mobile worship system they would set it up when they would camp in a particular location and then they would uh, take it back down and move it with them as they would move to a new location and we saw as God gave to Moses all the dimensions and all the different kind of intricate coverings that were to be a part of it, how it was to be embroidered and what it was to look like, all the measurements, and then, of course, the furnishings that would be a part of it, um, the the table of showbread on the inside and the menorah, and, and we haven't quite looked at it. We'll see in the chapters ahead the uh, altar of incense, but, of course, we saw it was kind of divided into two rooms, the front room being the holy place where the priests would enter in and they would tend the lamps of the menorah, They would rotate the bread on the table of uh, the bread of presence there. And then there was that thick veil and behind that veil, remember, was the second portion of that tent-like structure, which we call the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And back there was the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the place where the Shekinah glory of God or God would manifest his presence among his people. And once a year, uh, and only once a year, the high priest with the blood of an innocent sacrifice could go behind that veil. And it was a veil of separation to remind humanity that their sinfulness did not permit them to just enter directly into the presence of God. Uh, And only once a year, one man, the high priest, could go back there with the blood of an innocent substitute and make atonement there upon the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. Now, uh, as we've been looking at those things, we now come to chapter 28, and we actually now begin to get instruction regarding uh, those who would be the ministers among this tabernacle worship system, Uh, and that would be the priests, the priests and the Levites. We know the Levites, the tribe of Levi, uh, the different family members, they would set up and tear down the tabernacle and all of its furnishings to move it around. But particularly, uh, the line of Aaron's family, Moses' brother, would be the priesthood. uh, And they would tend particularly to the tabernacle ministry on a daily basis. And uh, one of Aaron's line would be the actual high priest who would sort of oversee the priesthood and at the same time would go in uh, and handle that specific unique function of making atonement one time a year. So as we come to chapter 28 now, again, Moses is still receiving all of these things by revelation from the Lord, but chapters 28 and 9, 29 give to us uh, really the instruction of the garments for the priests, the establishment of the priesthood, how they were to inaugurate or to ordain the priests and to set them into service. Uh, They won't do this until later on historically, but the instructions are now being given to Moses regarding these things. It says, chapter 28, verse 1, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as a priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, 
Eliezer and Ithamar. So uh, at this point now we have mention in verse 1 here of the fact that God was going to establish the priest to function in a ministry capacity between he and his people. Now uh, understand the idea of a priest in the Old Testament really was a twofold ministry. Uh, the priest would represent uh, the people uh, before God and at the same time, he would represent God to the people. So he had a, a, a mediator-type role where he would stand in the gap between God and people, in a sense. And he would represent the people uh, as a representative uh, of the people before God. And at the same way, his ministry also, in a dual function, was to represent God to the people and to teach the people God's word, to stand in the gap for them, to convey things uh, regarding the heart of the Lord, to receive direction from the Lord. Uh, and, and this ministry is now instituted at this time, and God, by his, and let me say this very clearly, by his divine divine grace doesn't select Moses he selects Aaron uh, and I emphasize that that is by grace because uh, we know certainly Aaron and even his sons uh, you know were not exactly the uh, you know sharpest tools in the toolbox uh, reality is when Moses goes back down from the mountain uh, what's Aaron going to be doing uh, he's going to be helping the people lead the way to create a golden calf uh, and have them dancing around in some naked party orgy, worshiping some golden calf, right as Moses is coming back down the mountain with the tablets of the instructions of do not make any graven image or idol and bow down to anything. And, uh, and then, of course, we know Nadab and Abihu, his first two eldest sons mentioned in this verse, later on, they're going to be struck dead by God right at the onset of their ministry very early on because they go in and present strange fire before the Lord in some perverse way of handling the affairs of ministry. So uh, I just bring that to your attention for us to realize that when God determines to use someone, uh, it is really nothing other than an act of the grace of God. You know, Paul would say, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so important for us to realize when the Lord ordains someone to serve in some capacity, in some ministry function, uh, that's an act of his grace. It's not necessarily who's the most experienced, who's the most talented, who's the brightest, who's the godliest, who has the most, uh, you know, uh, potential. No, it's who does God determine by his grace is the individual that he wants to, in a sense, identify and to serve in that capacity. I think the selection of the priesthood is a very clear indication of that. God calls them, he then ordains them, and he uses them. Now, not to say that we should not want to present ourselves as a vessel of honor fit for the master's use, as Paul told Timothy we should. But nonetheless, you know, Paul recognized this about himself. I said, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who counted me faithful, and he enabled me, putting me into the ministry. And, and, and we see this throughout the word of God. Here, an act of God's divine grace. He now institutes the priesthood. He chooses Aaron 
and his family line, the Aaronic family line, to be the line through which the priesthood would have its succession among the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and I want you to take notice in verse 1, and you'll see this repeated again in verse 3, as well as in verse 4. Notice this phrase, he says, Aaron and his sons, the priests, it says, verse 1, that he may minister to me as priests. Look at the end of verse 3, that he may minister to me as priest. Look at the end of verse 4, that he may minister to me as priest. Now, do you think God's having a little struggle with his memory so he's being repetitive and repeating himself? You know, I know sometimes I can be guilty of that. I want to be thorough and on occasion my you know, uh, wife and daughters will will say to me, "Look, you you said that the same thing, same thing seven times, seven different ways. We got the point the first or the second time." Well, you know, part of that is, I guess, my human weakness. But there's another part of that that I also realize that the best way to learn is repetition, repetition repetition and repetition and whether it's sports or whether it's driving the point home uh, you know when I read my Bible I see that sometimes God's repetitious uh, things that are important he says more than once and I think we should take note of that in Proverbs you find sometimes uh, phrases repeated like where uh, you know Proverbs 14 we find a phrase show up where it says there's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is death and then later on you find that same proverb again now, is that God going, oops, I couldn't come up with something new to say, so I figured I'd just say something to fill in space there or, you know, typographical error? No, that was just God wanted to make sure that sometimes we need to be reminded and we need to hear the same thing, especially when he wants to drive a point home. And here, the Spirit of God, within these four verses, we find the same thing repeated, and I think there's reason to take note of that, that in regards to... The inauguration of ministry, someone being set apart to minister in a, in a capacity of service. Here it was the priesthood. Notice that God emphasizes that Aaron and his son shall minister to me as priest. Very interesting. It, God doesn't say they shall minister for me as a priest. You know, we always want to minister for the Lord. I want to minister for the Lord. I love to minister for the Lord. Can I minister for the Lord? And, and, and God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. My perspective on ministry is very different than what yours is. He says, they shall minister to me, first and foremost. Did they in a function, yes, minister for the Lord as well as they served? Absolutely. I'm not saying that's not a, a legitimate thing. But their primary responsibility was to do their ministry as unto the Lord. The Lord said, look, before you try and minister for me to others, I want you first to be ministering to me in a personal, private, and a devotional way. Their first calling was to do their ministry as, as a, a love offering and a, a sacrifice unto the Lord. And it was to come out of their private and personal 
devotion to the Lord to want to minister to him. Lord, I want to please you. Help me to do this in a way that would be pleasing to you. Help me to be faithful unto you in this calling that you've given to me. Help me to to do this in a way whereby it would be in accordance with how you want it done. Not just, well, you've given me the opportunity, so now I'm going to take it and you know work it and spin it and create my methods and formulas and, and, and thanks for the opportunity and don't worry, i got a great plan and I'll just... You know, and, and I'm going to go off with that since you gave me the title on the role. No, no, no. Lord, this is your opportunity. It belongs to you. You've entrusted it to me by your grace. And I want to do it in a way that ministers to you. And I can only do it effectively if I am first ministering unto the Lord anyway. Because it's out of that private, devotional, relational experience with the Lord that anything of fruit uh, and worthiness comes out of our ministry for the Lord to other people on the horizontal. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's very, very critical. And a lot of times, and I just say this by way of caution, especially when you begin to be open to letting the Lord use your life, you have to be careful of this. A lot of times we can get so focused on the horizontal aspect of ministry and we want to minister for the Lord and we run over there and minister for the Lord and we minister for the Lord in this and this and we have seven different categories that we're ministering for the Lord and we're so busy ministering for the Lord that we stop ministering to the Lord. And we wonder why we're struggling in ministry. We wonder why maybe there's not the fruit we would like to see or why there's a dryness in it or our attitude doesn't seem right in regards to it or in a sense, you know, the vibe that is coming off is something of the flesh rather than an unction and anointing of the spirit that's having an impact on people's lives in a way that bears fruit spiritually. So important that our ministry life be first unto the Lord. Your first calling is to minister to Jesus, to minister to the Lord, to bless him, serve him in your personal life, and out of the overflow of that private personal ministry to him, then there becomes an overflow of when you then begin to minister for him. And that's what empowers your ministry for him. And that's what keeps your ministry for him in a healthy way. So I just find this very beautiful, the way the Lord words this here. I think it's something not to be overlooked. They shall minister to me as priests. May the Lord help us as his ministers to minister to him in the different ministry capacities he lets us serve him in. Now, as we begin to look at the priesthood, Certainly as we go through these things, these are legitimate, literal things that were happening among the nation of Israel. But you know, again, how does this make some application to our lives? Well, I would say two things as we're reading through these things together in these verses. First of all, especially as we look at Aaron, who was the high priest, one high priest, and the other sons and those in his family were, were just priests who kind of s- served in a subservient supporting role among the ministry of the tabernacle. The Bible tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. So certainly as we look at these things, there should be part of our spiritual perspective that wants to see elements of Jesus in these things. That as we look at aspects of uh, Aaron's life and his garments and his inauguration and, and all the, we should want to see things that are glimmers of Jesus in that who is our great high priest. Hebrews 3.1 says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is our great high priest. The New Testament also tells us 
that as believers, as Christians, that we, in a sense, are a priesthood spiritually and figuratively from God's perspective. 1 Peter 2.5 says regarding us as Christians, you are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. So is Jesus the great high priest? Yes, he is. So he's our mediator. I don't need to go to, to God through a man anymore. Jesus has done what he has done so Paul could declare to us in the New Testament there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is now our great high priest. He is now the mediator. There's no need for a human mediator anymore. The Bible teaches that Christ is our mediator. He is our great high priest. We go to God through Jesus. He is the way to the Father. And that spiritually, we then, as brothers and sisters of Christ and sons and daughters of God, God says that we have now become like a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. We serve under the submission of the authority of Jesus as the great high priest, and we have a priesthood-type ministry. We have a ministry in this world to represent Jesus and represent God to people. We are salt and light. We're to represent the Lord to the world. But we also have the privilege in a priesthood whereby we stand in the gap for people by interceding for people. And through intercessory prayer, we go right to God through the great high priest and we can stand in the gap and represent people before God that don't know God and pray for their salvation or intercede for needs in their lives. So certainly as we look at these things, there are aspects of, I think, ministry callings that we all have. Whether you have a title or a role or position, the Bible says we're all able ministers of the new covenant and in a sense we all have a priesthood type ministry to be witnesses of Christ as born-again Christians. Verse 2, God begins to give some instructions now. And the first thing he does is begin to speak about the way in which the priests were to be clothed or dressed. He says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that is to set him apart, to distinguish him, that he may minister to me as priest. So God, from his divine prerogative and perspective, determines under the Old Testament covenant here in the tabernacle worship system that the priest, the high priest, and the other priests as well, particularly the high priest though, was to wear particular garments, and it's going to say while he was ministering. So it doesn't seem that Aaron walked around in these garments all the time, you know, so that when he went to the marketplace, they went, hey, bless you, priest, you know. He wore these garments while he was ministering to the Lord and in the presence of the Lord, because it's what God wanted. So, so God said, this is the way that he is to approach me. This is the way that he will be acceptable to minister before me. And there are aspects of these garments and dress, we'll see, that certainly had spiritual inflections and reminders to them, no doubt, as we'll talk about. But the Lord here, you know, it is just interesting, is it not? The Lord cared about how one who was ministering for him dressed. I find that interesting. 
that it mattered to the Lord how they clothed and represented themselves as they served in a function of ministry before the Lord and before his people. And you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with praying uh, when you go to your clothing wardrobe, especially if you're going to stand in the presence of the Lord and before God's people uh, to serve. I mean, certainly the culture we live in today, God forbid that we just dress like the world and uh, stand before people. And, you know, we'll certainly create a, a whole lot of confusion. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking into consideration, hey, you know, when I stand before the Lord's people, I, I don't want to unnecessarily draw it. I don't want to stumble someone. Uh, you know, I mean, to, to me, that has always been something, even from, you know, being in the pulpit, you know, taking into consideration, okay, well, you know, what kind of a fellowship am I in, whether I'm in my own fellowship that I'm pastoring at or, you know, guest speaking somewhere, and, you know, would it be better there to, to don a tie because that's, you know, kind of the, 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 the nature of that particular gathering of believers or from community to community, you know, things are definitely different here in this area of South Jersey than they were in York. Pennsylvania and just you know being sensitive to those kind of things um, you know if somebody comes in dressed nicely or somebody comes in wearing you know t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops I don't want anybody to be stumbled and not listen to me because they look and go listen to that guy and look at what he's dressed like I, I, I don't want those things to to be an issue I don't want anything to be a stumbling block. And I just find it interesting that it actually mattered to God how they were dressed. I, you know, I think that we should take all things into consideration. Again, am I being realistic? No. What I'm saying is, is that the Bible teaches that we should look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And, and in humility, that we should consider others better than ourselves. So in every element of how you would be used to minister to God, yes, you, my opinion, in love, you should proactively be thinking about if I do this or if I don't do this, am I going to distract someone? Am I going to draw attention to myself unnecessarily? Or, you know, again, we want glory to be deflected to the Lord and we want people to be able to receive the ministry that he wants to orchestrate in a healthy way through our lives. So particular garments are what are described in chapter 28 that God wanted them to wear. And notice these garments were to be designed and created. Verse 3 it says, by gifted artisans, God said, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom that they would be able to make Aaron's garments. So interesting. In a sense, here you have Holy Spirit anointed tailors and seamstresses uh, who were basically supernaturally gifted by God with an aptitude and a capacity to be, again, you know, like fashion design and creating these wardrobes. And we'll see some of this is some intricate stuff that they were to design for the high priest. And the Lord says, and that's their calling. That's their ministry. And from God's perspective, please understand, God was saying, oh, now the high priest, he's up here. But the guy who makes the clothes, I mean, he's, he's just running a sewing machine. And uh, No, from God's perspective, God created Aaron to be a high priest. And God created these gifted artisans to have aptitude and skill in design and sewing and colors and all that goes into designing you know, garments. But those things all complemented one another for the ministry that God wanted to do.
The important thing in spiritual life is to just be open and to discern who God's called you to be. You know what? Later we'll see that God gives people supernatural ability to work with, you know, uh, you know, uh, block work and, and 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 metals and so forth, and the building of the temple. And look, these were all, and and the spirit of God was upon. They were anointed to do that, to contribute their part for the complementary function of what God was doing. And listen, if these people in verse three didn't do what God was asking, then Aaron wouldn't be able to do what he was supposed to do because God's going to say if he doesn't have those clothes on, he better not come to my presence because he'll die. So what they did supported and complemented what and it enabled Aaron to be able to do what he did. So God uses all of us in different ways and he wants to use your life. Even as here he had these gifted artisans, he gave them special gifting and filled them with a spirit of wisdom so they would, oh, we could do this and that and design it. And as they got the instructions from Moses, they could create these things. Verse four, and these are the garments which they shall make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban and a sash and so they shall make holy garments interesting god calls them holy garments for aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister to me as a priest so seven different garments again i'm sure there's no coincidence in that seven uh, the number of completion in the bible seven garments that are mentioned that we'll see described in this chapter the first one we look at is the ephod verse 5 it says they shall take gold blue purple and scarlet thread and fine linen take notice these are the same colors right and materials that were used in the creation of what the tabernacle right and the veil and all those things so uh you know god's even got a color theme running here God's pretty creative. I like that. You know, we need people who have color theme capability as well. He says, no, let's make sure Aaron matches the tabernacle. Uh, I find that interesting. The same colors here we find showing up again for the ephod. They shall make, verse 6, an ephod of gold. Here's these same colors again. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen artistically worked. And it shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. And they shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and six of the names on the other in the order of their birth with the work of an engraver in stone like the engravings of a signet you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel and you shall then set them in settings of gold and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stones for the sons of Israel so Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial and you shall also make settings of gold and make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the setting so you know again a lengthy technical description again thank goodness they had gifted artisans with the spirit of wisdom that moses could say okay here's what this thing's supposed to look like and they go, no problem we we can put that together you know somebody like me would be going 
what in the world? How in the world do you make something like that? But somebody who's gifted can say, no problem. You know, just like you know, guys we have around here who are you know gifted in you know technical things and carpentry and electrical things, and you go, we we, we kind of need to do this. No problem. You know, we just and, and they can just see it in their head and bing bang boom, pull out their tools and 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 just create the thing. And others of us just scratch our head, going, "Wow, how in the world do I even know where to start to do something like that?" Well, what you have described here, verses six through. 14, this ephod, the first garment piece, is basically sort of just an elaborate vest. It would have a hole in the top, uh, it would be connected at the top, and it would sort of just drape over front and back, uh, and it's designed here in such a way where then uh, it would be hooked at the shoulder area on both sides. You notice that it was, it says verse 9, to have two onyx stones, like black color onyx stones, if it's the same onyx we think of today. And on those onyx stones, where it would be sort of held together of this ephod and vest, which would go underneath the breastplate, we'll see then goes on top. Notice verse 10 tells us that on each stone, on each shoulder, there were to be six of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the other stone, the other six names of the 12 tribes of Israel in order of their birth. And it was to be done in the way of an engraver. So the names were to rest upon the shoulders In verse 12, God says the reason for the design in this way. He says, you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stones, as a a reminder, something a memorial stimulates memory and brings to mind for the sons of Israel. Verse 12, so Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. So God says part of the role of the high priest, he says, is that he would bear the names of the people that he stands to represent and to minister to, that he would bear on his shoulders, in a sense, as a burden, the names and the people whom he would minister to as he went into the presence of the Lord. You know, I look at this and I think, what a beautiful reminder because... You know, Isaiah tells us that God declares, I have you engraved on the palms of my hands. And, you know, to to think about the reality that Jesus wants to bear us. He wants to bear our burdens. And he wants to take our burdens. And as he represents us in the presence of the Father, as he goes into the presence of the Lord, he goes into the presence of his Father in heaven as our great high priest, uh, bearing our burdens for us. And, and, and bearing our burdens in a representative way whereby then Hebrews tells us that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And that we have a, a high priest who, who's not in a way you know, unfamiliar with our struggles but in all ways was, was tempted and went through all the things that we go through in our humanity and our frailty in this flesh. Just like you and I, we have this great high priest who's divine and at the same time human and understands those things. And we can go to him with our burdens and he helps bear those burdens and carry our burdens. And what a wonderful thing to be able to cast our burden on the Lord and to know that he carries our burden in intercession and prayer, that he is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you 
and he's bringing before the Father your burdens, the things that are weighing on you and hard and difficult. He bears those things on his broad shoulders and he intercedes in the presence of the Father in heaven with the burdens and things of your life. And you know, as we look at this as well, I think one of the roles of <clears throat> ministry that we all should share as spiritual priests, as 1 Peter 2 tells us, is part of ministering to the Lord and for the Lord in ministry in any capacity is being willing basically to bear people's burdens. It's not all glorious. A lot of ministry is, is just taking people's burdens on your own shoulders. And, and, and a lot of times it's a lot less glamorous than what people envision it to be. What it basically is, is the privilege to say, Lord, strengthen me and help me to be strong enough in you as a man of God, a woman of God, so that I can be in some way a blessing to others that when they go through difficult and hard and heavy times, that I can bear their burden with them or for them. I can bear their burden in prayer. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, that's a great aspect and a huge element of ministry is just being willing to bear people's burdens, to listen to people. And sometimes that's hard. It's heavy always, you know, carrying people. It's hard enough to carry our own burdens sometimes, isn't it? But then to care enough and to love enough and to let the Lord use you in some ministry capacity whereby you have to then carry the burdens of other people as well. But, you know, that's our calling. Whether we bear their burden by just knowing what's going on and, and just sensing the weight of it with them and just trying to lighten a load a little bit for them or bearing that burden by continuing to pray and intercede for them and, 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 and carrying that burden, in a sense, uh, through the work of intercessory ministry, bearing the, the burdens of those God gives to us to minister to is an important part of the way in which God wants to use each one of us. Verse 15 then goes on to mention the second garment and it says you shall then make the breastplate and and maybe breastpiece I think might be a better description there. Breastplate gives the idea of something that's kind of just made of solid metal when this really isn't. It has kind of a fabric with stones on top of it but it's going to be a small square thing. And it's a breastplate of judgment, not the idea of judgment as you think of being judged for wrongdoing, but the idea of judgment in the sense of making judgments, making judgments as far as making decisions on God's behalf. That's the idea of the term judgment there. It's, it's a breastplate. It sits over the heart area of having good judgment to make judgments, the idea is. It's to be artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod you shall make it. Again, of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine woven linen you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, and a span shall be its length, and a span shall be its width. Now, technically, a span, usually, is the measurement from your thumb to your small finger, if you were to spread out your hand, which typically ends up being, traditionally, around nine inches. So, again, we can't be dogmatic here, but what you have here is it's described as uh, cloth, Uh, that ends up being about a nine-inch square. Uh, And it seems to be like, you know, cloth actually folded over. So as we'll see, there's a pocket 
in this nine-inch uh, breastplate or breast piece because ultimately we'll see the urim and the thummim actually go inside of that. So something that's designed with sort of a pocket inside of it that they could reach into. Verse 17 says, you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones, the first row, sardis, topaz, and emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row was to have turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. The third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst. Verse 20, the fourth row was to have beryl, onyx, and jasper, and they were to be set in gold settings. In verse 21, the stones shall have the names, again, of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the twelve tribes. So again, we take note here that as God's designing this, there's to be 12 stones, beautiful, notice, precious, valuable gemstones is what these are. And each one, this time, each one was to have its own representation of one of the 12 tribes of Israel to represent them. And the priest was to wear it right over his heart. And we'll see why for that in a few minutes. But what a beautiful indication here of God's perspective towards his people. Here is God's designing this, and he says, look, I want you to put all these different stones on this breastplate that you wear over your heart, and I want you to put a name of each one of the tribes on each one of these stones. God chooses valuable, precious gemstones to represent his people. He didn't use things like uh, coal, you know, a common stone, tarnished metal. I mean, if you think about what we really are, those probably would have been, <coughs> excuse me, I'm making fun of myself even. They probably would have been better representations of what we are. But, but God doesn't do that because God puts a tremendous value upon our lives. Now, we need to remember what we really are. I'm going through Isaiah and my devotions right now and just read recently where God says, remember the rock from which you were hewn and the pit from which you were dug. In other words, yeah, you were a slime ball and a chunk of dirty rock in the bottom. So don't ever forget that. That's what you are. But from God's divine perspective, look what God equates as a representation of his people, precious, valuable, expensive gemstones. Why? Because from God's perspective, that's how he looks at your life. God puts tremendous value upon your life. You are extremely valuable and worthy and highly costly is your life in the sight of the Lord. I mean, there's no clear demonstration of that in that Jesus, when we read the New Testament, gives a story of finding a pearl of great price. You know, that he paid the ultimate price to redeem us and present the gospel invitation to us of salvation. And, and how wonderful to know that from God's perspective, no matter what you are in yourself, that God says, you have such great worth to me. You have such great value to me. And, and to, to envision ourselves with our name upon one of those stones. And again, they're all different. They're not the same. Isn't that interesting as well? They're all valuable. They're all beautiful. They're all worthwhile and expensive, precious stones, but yet they're all unique. They're all different. They all give off a different 
uh, representation in the same way we have that beautiful diversity among the body of Christ. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of gold, two rings for the gold breastplate and two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. And if you'll bear with me, verse 23 down really through verse 28, just if you want to read it, if it tickles your fancy, just describes the connecting pieces, the gold loops and the gold chains. Again, basically describing how this breastplate would then kind of hover, as I said, connected to the ephod, connected to the sashary, so that it would hover right over this nine-inch uh, piece of cloth with the beautiful gemstones right over the heart area of Aaron the high priest. Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names <clears throat> of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. So again, isn't this beautiful? God's giving a reminder here to the one who would minister to him and for him to the people that belong to him. He says, Aaron... I want you to wear that breastplate with the names of the tribes of Israel because he says, I want the people to be over your heart. So that's symbolic. He's seeking to remind Aaron, look, Aaron, this isn't just something I want you to do mechanically. It's not about you. It's not about you strutting around in your fancy priesthood garments. <laughs> I'm the high priest. Did you notice that? Ain't I classy? Ain't I cool? You know, it's not about you. It's about them. Aaron, you don't exist in that role for you. You exist in that role for them. And you're to carry the people over your heart. You're to have concern for them. You're to have care for them. You're to realize that you exist for them. To bear their burdens. To love them. To care for them. To have concern for them. And God wanted them to be right over his heart as a constant reminder of that. And that is so essential and so important. Listen, the Bible says, let all things we do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 13 is purposely stuck right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 because of the centrality of love. And God's whole emphasis is, listen, I don't care how gifted you are, what gift you try and operate in this and that, if there's not love at the motivation of why you do it and the purpose for why you do it, then God says it's worthless. It's vain. And we have to be very careful because there can be lots of motivating reasons to ministry. People want to minister for the Lord for lots of different reasons. Trust me, I, I've lived this out for years. I know the struggles that I've wrestled with in my own flesh. But at the end of the day, God says, this is the basis of ministry. That you would have people over your heart. And, and, and that you would sense my concern for the people. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. Was it his love for Christ that compelled him? Yes, I'm sure that was a part of it. But I also think Paul understood that, that he just he had a gripping sense in his heart that he sensed how God loved and cared about the people and he was moved with the compassions and the love of Christ. It wasn't that Paul was this great, wonderful man. No, but he, but he had the love of God over his heart and he had the people in 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 that same place over his heart. And that was where the overflow of the ministry came from. Listen, if you're going to minister to people, let people that you minister to, keep them over your heart. Care about them. 
Be concerned about them. Bear their burdens. Be concerned for them. That's where Jesus holds you tonight. He, he, holds, he has you on his heart as the great high priest. He loves you. You're on his heart. That should make you feel wonderful tonight. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're going through something. Look, you're not just on the Lord's mind. You're on his heart. You're on the heart of Jesus. He loves you. He knows exactly what you're struggling with. And he cares. He cares about what you're going through and wants to help and is deeply concerned and compassionately interested. Verse 30 then says, You shall put the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel, again, over his heart before the Lord continually. You catch the emphasis again there? Three times we find that over his heart, verse 29. Then verse 30, we see it again twice. He shall have them over his heart when he goes in before the Lord. Verse, again, 30, second time. He shall have them over his heart before the Lord continually. That's what honors the Lord when he sees that you have people on your heart. That's what the Lord wants to see when we're coming into his presence in prayer and, and ministering in his name and so forth. And here, verse 30, we now get mention of this Yorm and Thummim. And the two terms there are literally lights and perfections. Uh, it seems from the couple inferences we have and descriptions of this in the Old Testament, and there are only a few mentions, that these were potentially two stones. Uh, they clearly were somehow used in the time of the Old Testament ministry of the priesthood at times, not all the time, but at times to help discern the will of God. Numbers 27 says that Eliezer, the priest, shall inquire before the Lord for Joshua by the judgment of the Urim. Now, we never get an extended description or a real clear definition from God of exactly what these were. People speculate. Was it you know, two different stones and kind of you asked God a question and you reached in and depending upon what stone you pulled out, one represented yes, one represented no, um, Possible. We're not somehow they were used. They understood how they were used. There was something maybe just even personal and private between the Lord and the person who was in that God ordained role that maybe there was something of that. And maybe that's why God did keep it secretive. Because maybe God said, This is something between me and the one who's ordained in this way. I will speak to him. And, and he will know the heart and the mind of the Lord in this matter. But somehow they were used. They were Again, they were kept over the heart in the breastplate. They were somehow used to discern the will of the Lord at times. Verse 31, we then have description of the robe, the lengthier robe that would be worn uh, of the ephod. That was to be made of a blue cloth. And there shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening like the opening of a coat of mail so that it does not tear. And the idea is that it's all one piece. Uh, many see in this the reminder of Jesus' garment that was all one piece that we read about in the Gospels that they then gambled uh, sort of between themselves, the soldiers. <clears throat> Verse 32, there shall be an, uh, an opening. Oh, I read that part. Sorry. Verse 33, and upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem. So it was decorative. And it was to have bells of gold between them all around around the bottom fringes, 
a golden bell and then a pomegranate, very common fruit in the nation of Israel, the pomegranate, sort of a red fleshy type fruit, but a very common fruit, prolific there. A golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around, and it shall be upon Aaron, notice, when he ministers. And its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, and I have this underlined, that he may not die. Wow. I guess that was pretty important. <laughs> Where that robe? That? I wish I could give a lot of explanation. But apparently God wanted him to have that robe on. God says if he doesn't have it on, he's going to die. So apparently approaching the Lord and ministering for the Lord in the way the Lord wants it done is very important. So when I minister for the Lord or you minister for the Lord, I don't want to approach it or I don't want to do it in a way that's not acceptable to him first. The Bible says, may the, you know, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. A lot of times we want the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart to be acceptable in the sight of others. Hey, ain't I clever? Ain't I cool? Was I impressive? Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? And, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, were, were, is this acceptable to you? Is this pleasing to you? The way in which I minister or how I approach ministry? Here, this you know, get up, the dress that they were to be in when they ministered, verse 35, when he ministers, he was to have it on when he went into the holy place so that he did not die. Now, <clears throat> People, again, try and pull out of this, what's the golden bell and the pomegranate? You know, some think the pomegranate represents fruitfulness, that his ministry was to be fruitful. Certainly that has some credence to it, but what does the golden bell represent? I mean, is it, you know, gold is uh, the picture, again, many times of divinity. A bell is something that, uh, in a sense, draws attention. It creates a sound to draw attention, and certainly the priest was to draw attention not to himself, but he was to draw attention to the Lord. So maybe it's a reminder of, of how his calling was to draw attention to divinity, a golden bell. He was to draw attention to God. And in that, he would be fruitful. Possibility. Because there was to be a golden bell and a pomegranate throughout it. Some people have said before, myself included at times in the past, that this was so that when we went into the most holy place once a year, that those bells would tinkle and they would know that he was still alive and that God didn't strike him dead when he went into the presence of God. And if the bell stopped ringing, then there was a rope around his leg and they would then pull him out and have to get themselves a new high priest because he wasn't right before God when he went into God's presence. Well, that sounds really interesting, but there would seem to be a little bit of a contradiction because when you read Leviticus chapter 16 and the description of how the high priest went in, it seems that he went in only in a very stripped down attire once a year when he went in, and there doesn't seem to be any mention of bells. So it sounds like a really cool story, but it doesn't seem that's what these bells really existed before. Somehow they had a purpose, whether it was ornateness or something functional or a reminder, but it was all part of what he was to have on as he ministered in the name of the Lord. Verse 36 says, You shall also make a plate of gold and engrave on it like an engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord, and you shall put on it a blue 
cord that it may be on the turban. This was the thing that he would wear on his head. And it was to say holiness to the Lord over his head. It was sort of a gold plate right there on this turban. And I think that was a great reminder for him to keep his mind in the right place. That his mind, his thoughts were to be holy and to be set apart for God's thoughts. Holiness to the Lord. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that he may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in their gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord as he represented them. And you shall skillfully weave the tunic, sort of the, the undergarment portion now of fine linen and of thread. You shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make the sash like a large belt that would tie it all together around the waist area. For Aaron's sons, so they were to get garments as well, not as elaborate as the high priest, but verse 40 says that Aaron's sons, the other, just the priests generally, they were to make tunics as well for them and make sashes and you shall make hats for them for glory and for beauty. So they were to have an identification, not the same as the high priest, but they had special garments to wear as they ministered as well. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons, <clears throat> and you shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they, again, notice, may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers, now we're down literally to the undergarments, to cover their nakedness. Again, God didn't want them to be exposed as they were walking up the altar. We read about that back in Exodus 20. That reach from the waist down to the thighs. They were to be dressed modestly. They shall be on Aaron and his sons and come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place. Notice that they do not incur iniquity and die. Again, God was pretty serious about this. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So God lays out this wardrobe, quite an elaborate wardrobe, that they were to wear as they approached the Lord in their ministry, in his presence before him and for the people to help minister to them in one of the many ways that they would minister in chapter 29, we'll sort of then see, and we'll look at it tonight, but the inauguration and the ordination of putting them into service, and that's really what verse 41 is describing. If you draw your attention there before we close, God says, you shall put these things on Aaron and his sons, and he says, you shall anoint them, that is with the anointing oil, consecrate them, that is they were to be consecrated unto the Lord and sanctify them. That is, they were to be set apart that they may minister to me as priests. And really, chapter 29 will be, in a sense, the exposition of that statement there. That they weren't just to have the right stuff. They also were to have their heart and life in the right place. It's not enough just to have the right stuff. God says, no, they need to be anointed. This oil will be put upon them as a representation of the anointing of the Spirit. And you know what? As I said, it's not enough just to have the right equipment. Not enough to have the right equipment. Quite honestly, you can be deficient in the equipment department. But if the anointing of the Spirit of God is upon your life, that's what's going to make the difference. 
If you have a consecrated life unto God and you're willing to live set apart, that is, you know what? I realize to embrace this calling or to serve the Lord in this way, it's going to mean I'm going to have to choose to live set apart from the way that maybe even all the rest of, not just the world lives, but maybe even away from all the rest of God's people live. And see, that's a unique thing that some are willing to embrace and some are not. We need the anointing of the Spirit. We need a life that is consecrated unto God in a personal way. But sometimes we also be willing, need to be willing to say, you know what, Lord, and I'm willing to, to live set apart, not just from the world. Certainly we should be set apart from the world, God forbid. But sometimes to stand and to minister for the Lord in some different capacities to a level, it means that we need to be willing even to set ourselves apart from some of the things that maybe even other people that know and love and worship the Lord, they can partake in with their discretionary time and exercising the liberties. But we say, but you know what? If I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm not going to be able to indulge that freedom because I need to be set apart to be available for the Lord. Or I need to let my life be set apart so that, in a sense, I'm not potentially encumbered with something because I'm exercising a liberty. And you know, that's where the measure of choosing to sacrifice comes in. And saying, Lord, I want to be set apart for you. So I will set apart my life and say, Lord, okay, I'll, I'll let this go. I'll give this up so that I can be a vessel of honor fit for the Master's use. And you know what? Again, the Bible says that in a sense we are all spiritual priesthood. So my exhortation to you tonight is this. You know what? As you get before the Lord, say, Lord, are there areas in my life that are not consecrated over to you? And, and Lord, is there some way in which maybe you want to use me, but what you're waiting upon is for me to be willing to sort of set apart my life in a way to maybe pull away from this or, or forsake having the opportunity, not that it's a wrong thing, but you know, I, because I need to have my time, my attention devoted to you, and, and I need to protect the boundaries so that I'm not potentially encumbered in something, and I'm willing to set my, part of life, my life apart for you. And Lord, most importantly, I need your anointing. I need your Spirit's anointing, because it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord.